Welcome to the podcast where I invite you on a journey to explore meaning, vulnerability and purpose through the lens of a life lived in geekdom. I'm David Monteith and I am the Naked Geek. And welcome back to the boudoir. Here we go again. And today's tipple is what I'm so excited to tell you about. It's a whiskey. It's a bourbon. Uh, it's from America. It's called George T. Stag. I mean, I love a drink that's actually named after somebody. But yeah, George T. Stag. So once again, I'm in a bar on tour. And I asked the guy at the bar for a decent recommendation for a bourbon. And he said they had George T. Stag. They had George T. Stag. But it was a bit pricey. Now I'm like... Wait, 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 wait. Don't make assumptions, bro, on what I can afford. I didn't say that out loud. I said that in my head. But I asked him out loud to tell me how much it was for a shot. And I think it was, I think my indignation was present in the, my tone of voice. Turns out he was right, though. 13 pounds for a single shot. Damn. So I turned to my colleagues and asked if anyone wanted to buy me this drink for my birthday. Now, the lovely Kate asked me when my birthday was, thinking she'd missed it. So I told her the truth. It was in September, which is about seven months away as, uh, you know, from when this happened. And she bought it for me anyway. So, you know, happy days. And my God, it was incredible. I have never had a whiskey like it. So the blurb for this whiskey is lush toffee sweetness and dark chocolate with hints of vanilla fudge, nougat and molasses. Underlying notes of dates, tobacco, dark berries, spearmint and a hint of coffee round out the palate. But I forget all of that. Here's what happens. You sip. You get this actual lovely mix of flavours, which is a little overwhelming in its complexity. And then the vapour hits the back of your throat and invades your nose. Enough to get you tipsy before you've even swallowed a job. And then it goes down, taking the burn with it. And just when you've adjusted, the vapors warm up the entire digestive system and creep back up to your nose, giving you a secondary blast. Meanwhile, the heat is continuing to make its way through your belly as the aftertaste kicks in with another burst of pleasant flavor enhanced by the aroma. And then it all slowly dies away together. That, my friends, is the first sip. Yeah, I mean, this, this, <laughs> that was the first sip. This was bourbon heaven. And at £900 a bottle, I can see why. So, you know what? If you don't ask, you don't get it. If anyone wants to buy me one of those for my birthday, their link is in the show notes. Now. If you listen to episode 15, you know that I was inspired by an old school sci-fi story from Isaac Asimov, Foundation. And it suddenly occurred to me that I had a series from a contemporary of Asimov on the shelf. And as I'm in a bit of a retro phase at the moment, I thought I'd get it out. So this series is written by a guy called E.E. E. Doc Smith, which is a great name and endears me to him already. Now, E.E. E. or Edward Elmer, <laughs> as it was his full name, people were actually called Elmer. Uh, was he was a food engineer specializing in donuts and pastry mixes. So literally, this guy is growing in my estimation with everything I read about him. In fact, sci-fi giant, the author Robert Heinlein says that he began to suspect Smith might be some sort of Superman when he asked Smith for help in purchasing a car. Smith tested the car by driving it on a back road at illegally high speeds with their heads pressed tightly against the roof columns to listen for chassis squeaks by bone conduction. I mean, what? 
That's madness. I love, love this guy. Anyway, his most notable work and the one I'm taking inspiration from is the Lensman series, which was nominated for the 1966 Hugo Award for Best All-Time Series and was beaten out by Asimov's Foundation. George Lucas says he was heavily influenced by the Lensman series, as was J. Michael Straczynski, who was the creator of one of my favourite sci-fi shows, Babylon 5. Ron Howard tried to make a Lensman film with J. Michael as a writer, but budget got in the way of that. So there are six books in the series, and oh, I'd love to see a film of that. Yeah. Anyway, there are six books in the series, and the first, the one which I'm concerning myself with today, is called Triplanetary. Now, Triplanetary is a prologue for the series, really, and sets the stage for a galaxy-wide conflict, a battle between order and chaos, between harmony and conquest. We start by being introduced to the benevolent and incredibly powerful Arisians, who become aware of the evil and incredibly powerful Edorians. The Arisians know that it's just a matter of time, and by a matter of time they mean aeons, before the Edorians discover their existence and realise that they are manipulating galactic development as much as the Edorians are. More than that, we see that the Arisians are undertaking a breeding programme on the four most promising planets, Earth being one of them, that will breed a being with powers greater than the Arisians themselves and therefore be able to destroy the Edorians. Now, on Earth, there are two genetic lines that we are following. And the first half of the book takes us through the prehistory, or well, the history of Earth. So it goes from the destruction of Atlantis to an attempted coup in Rome to the First and Second World Wars and a nuclear Third World War. And in all of these encounters, we see the part played by the two genetic lines, by, by members of those genetic lines. And those genetic lines are not allowed to cross until much, much later. Now, eventually, much further in the future, when humanity has created a triplanetary service to police the three planets that humans have settled on, the Eurysians summon the latest in their breeding program and give him a lens, which is a device which gives the wearer a variety of mental capabilities and bridges the communication gap between different life forms. Now, as the story grows, new species are discovered in the galaxy and those influenced by the Eurysians form the Galactic Patrol and receive lenses. Uh, to help patrol the galaxy, yep. And their opponents, those warlike and domineering societies, are ones who are ob obviously influenced by the Edorians. Now, those comic fans amongst you will probably be thinking, this sounds familiar, and yep, the thought of a galactic patrol staffed by heroic beings wearing a device is very reminiscent of the Green Lantern Corps from DC Comics. They are heroic beings of many species protecting the galaxy with rings which enhance their mental abilities. In fact, Hal Jordan, the most famous Green Lantern from Earth, has a girlfriend at some point uh, whose name is Arisia, and she's blatantly and admittedly named after the planet Arisia that the Arisians come from in, in uh, The Lensman. Personally, I think the series is incredible. It is vintage space opera at its 1950s best. And I would say more exciting and slightly less misogynistic than Foundation. But regardless, I'm concerning myself with the first half of Triplanetary. I remember being really struck by the historical parts of this story. And actually, those are the parts that loom large in my memory. Now, the meta plot, the all-encompassing plot of this story is basically about the ultimate evolution of humanity. And the prehistory characters play a huge part in that story. But here's the thing those prehistory characters pretty much all 
failed or suffered personally or died in the attempt to make things better. Some died so quickly they had no idea that their efforts had even been wasted, most becoming not even a footnote in the annals of history. Appreciated by no one, acknowledged by no one, and yet, without them, the lensman would never have existed. Humanity would not have reached peak evolution. The universe would have become nothing but chaos and suffering and domination. These unsung heroes are literally the giants on whose shoulders the ultimate heroes stand. It puts me in mind of those who have come before me. My father remains one of my greatest icons. My grandfather fostered an entire community, providing them with banking, schooling and community cohesion. My great-great-great-grandfather bought his way out of slavery and founded my current family dynasty. I stand on the shoulders of these people and count myself privileged to do so. Their legacy has contributed to who I am. But those are just three examples of thousands of unnoted men and women for whom I would not exist without. I have no idea of their heroics or their lack of heroics, no idea of their stories, but without them, I simply wouldn't be here. And this isn't just an ancestor thing. Who here listening to this has ever heard of E.E. E. Doc Smith? And I'm betting very, very, very few of you have. But without him, there would have been arguably no Babylon 5. And the influence that Babylon 5 had on modern sci-fi storytelling is without measure. But who influenced him and who influenced the ones that influenced them? I think, and I'm getting to my point now, that when we consider our place in the world, in the universe, it's easy to despair, to ruminate on the pointlessness of our existence or our contribution, to allow that nihilistic ennui to take over the everyday humdrum of our mundane lives. And yet, if there are countless people who have contributed to what we are, for whom we are the lens of their unknown lives, then what are we? There was a guy called August, great name by the way, Wiseman, who back in the 1900s proposed a theory about something he called the continuity of germplasm. Basically claiming that each of us has a form of immortality because we each of us pass on a bit of germplasm or genetic material which is passed on to our ancestors forever. So that means that all those who came before us are still present in some form in our physical being. Now, whether that's accurate or not, I like the theory and I think the same is true memetically, meaning that not only is it possible that we may pass on genetic traits, but that what we contribute to culture is also somewhat immortal. That the little things we do for which we may never be remembered by name is so damned incredibly important because it influences those around us in micro ways. The future ramifications of which we can't even fathom. In the same way that I feel like I stand on the shoulders of giants, I, we, are becoming the building blocks of those shoulders for future generations. Like the characters in Triplanetary, we may never, will never know the full extent of our influence, but it is impossible to be in this world, to speak, to write, to live, to breathe without being that influence. I feel like the interracism that I wish for will not come in my lifetime, in my children's lifetime or my great-great-great-grandchildren's lifetime, but 
I have to trust that every time I speak out or speak up or speak to someone, I'm making micro change upon micro change that builds into something that influences in some small way a lens for someone else to focus. I'm hoping that a hundred, a thousand such micro changes will have effects I can't conceive of right now. That means that we must remember that no matter what difficulties we face, we are important whether we want to be or not, whether we believe we are or not. That's not up for debate. Our influence is felt, be it positive or negative. You are not a nobody. You are not a nothing, whether history knows your name or not. You are embedded in the mechanism of building the future. You, we, are everything. Thank you once again for joining me in the boudoir. And I have one favour to ask. Please do me a review on whatever platform you like, on Apple Podcasts, on Facebook, on TikTok, even wherever you think you can build a buzz, whatever you can do to uh, to raise the profile of this podcast would be extremely appreciated. Link me in. And you know what? I'll give you a message. But until next time, I'm David Monteith, The Naked Geek. Mm-hmm.